back to kind of where we were teaching two weeks earlier, we closed out um, kind of the first chunk in the Gospel of Mark that we were calling Following Jesus. And two weeks ago, we looked at the three goals of a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. Does anybody remember what those three are? You want to help me out? First one is, I'll get candy and I'll throw it out. And first one, be with Jesus. My wife's the only one who remembers. Um, be with Jesus. Become like Jesus. Thank you. And do what Jesus did. See, you guys were learning. Um, so as we come out of those three goals, to be a follower of Jesus is to be with him, to become like him, and to do what he did. As we move into our next six-week kind of mini-series in the Gospel of Mark, um, we're going to be looking at that first goal. And we're spending six weeks on uh, the role of a disciple as being with Jesus, being with Jesus, asking questions of, well, first and foremost, when we are with Jesus, what do we find there? And then moving into how do we be with Jesus? In the 21st century, it's not as easy as it was for Peter and the disciples just to walk with him. Um, but what does it mean to be with this Jesus who is present with his people through his spirit? And so uh, what that means is that beginning next week, as part of the six-week series, we're going to be spending three weeks on the spiritual practice of silence and solitude. And I'm really excited for this and also petrified um, because I've done teaching through the Bible and it's still going to be very much teaching from the Bible, uh, but we're going to be actually looking at really practical practices that we can bring into our lives to experience the presence of Jesus on a daily basis. Um, and so I'm really excited as we begin that next week. But this week, we're going to be looking at this question of uh, three little stories and what does it mean to be with Jesus? What do we find when we go to Jesus and be with him? What's there waiting for us? We're going to find that through three different stories today. So why don't we read these three stories, and then I'll pray for our time together, and we'll get right into it. So Mark chapter 1, we're going to begin in verse 21 today. Mark 1 verse 21, if you have your Bibles, journals, or uh, on the screen behind me. And it says, <clears throat> And they, being Jesus and his disciples, went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as one of the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And then next week, we're going to come back to 35 through 39. So let's jump down to verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. 
And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing, offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to speak freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, <clears throat> we thank you for the work of John Mark, uh, working with the Apostle Peter in uh, bringing together these eyewitness accounts and then bringing it together in such a way that it speaks power, not just to the life of Jesus, but the life Jesus wants to work within us today. We pray that that life would meet us here, that you might help us to see our great need for your son, Jesus, uh, as we consider the life and the work that he's done. In your name we pray, amen. Now, as we read through this story, there are many common objections that we might have even before we get into what it's saying, uh, if you're anything like me. And the first one would be uh, the general idea that healings don't happen and demons aren't real. Um, I don't think I'm alone in at least having that somewhat uh, felt within my mind or heart or experience. Healings don't happen. Demons aren't real. And as we come up with that opinion or that thought, uh, the things that we need to be aware of is, is first and foremost having what C.S. Lewis coined uh, as chronological snobbery. And that is the idea that we look back on people who they believed in healings and demons, and we somehow see that us, our post-enlightenment selves, really have a better grasp on reality than they did. This isn't to say that one or the other is false or right, but in looking at the ideas and opinions and thoughts and beliefs of those who came before us, we need to be aware of chronological snobbery. The reality is that most humans throughout most of history, and even to this day, most humans outside of Western culture believe in some unseen reality, in some spiritual beings at, at some level. Even today, 20% of nuns, and, and not um, like Sister Act nuns, uh, uh, sister, nuns, as in those who identify with no religious system, 20% still believe in demons, which is strange. Um, they, they would say, we don't believe in any religious um, system, many of that 20% being outright atheists, and yet 20% of them would still go, there's something to the things that go bump in the night, this unseen realm, something like demons. That's from the Baylor Religious Study. You can look that up uh, if you want to. And so the first thing, that healings don't happen and demons aren't real, um, we need to acknowledge that uh, if we don't think demons are real, we're in the minority. That doesn't mean that we're wrong, but we just need to acknowledge that maybe we're not right. Similarly, with these healings, um, I would just say, we say healings don't seem to happen. That's also how the crowd felt in what we just read. <laughs> they said that they're amazed. Why? Because this doesn't happen every Tuesday or every Saturday when they show up at synagogue, right? There's something amazing to this. And even today in our modern medicine, we have consistently... Um, Countless stories of modern doctors who healings happen and they, beyond what they can explain. And so these things happen just because there's an absence of an explanation doesn't mean there's an absence of that experience or that reality. Similarly, the fact that we might look at these stories and go, okay, maybe healings and demons, da, 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 but these stories were made up by later disciples. This didn't actually happen. Now that flies in the face of extra biblical non-Christian historical evidence around who Jesus is. What I mean by extra biblical, what I mean is writings of history that come from outside of the Christian tradition. If you don't believe me, you can go read the Jewish Talmud, one of the founding documents of what is now you know, rabbinic Judaism for the first and second century. In these writings, there was a denial of the virgin birth of Jesus, 
They said Jesus' mom, they have a whole other side story for that happened. They denied the resurrection. They denied that Jesus was the Messiah. And yet the two things that they acknowledged was, well, three things. That Jesus of Nazareth was a historical person. That Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. And that Jesus of Nazareth was a wonder worker, a miracle worker, what they labeled as a sorcerer. Now, do you see what's going on here? Historical document. If there's anybody at the time of Jesus in the first and second century that wanted to deny that Jesus is who he claimed he was, it was most likely either the Jewish leaders or the Romans. And both of them acknowledged he was a historical person, and both of them acknowledged that he was a wonder worker and he did healings. So we can debate resurrection. We can debate uh, virgin birth. And there's grounds for even historical belief in that. But when we get to healing, why would, why would, all the, why would these Jewish authors, why would they claim that Jesus was doing healings unless... There was just so much massive eyewitness accounts that they had to acknowledge it. Thousands of people over the course of Jesus' ministry saw him as healing. And so this, these Talmudic writings, uh, they, they referred to it as sorcery. And even there's other accounts where they would still invoke Jesus' name in casting out demons because they saw that as being beneficial. So they denied that he was God and Messiah, but there was something to this guy's name that could cast out demons. You can go read about it if you want to in Sanhedrin 43A through B, Sanhedrin 107B, or the Sota 47A. You can look it up online, and you can find ancient historical writings that identify that Jesus was a historical person and that he did healings. Now, what that means for us today as we come to Mark is that, yes, we may be able to discuss and debate resurrection, but the one thing we can't get away is that what we're looking at here is one account of a historical certainty, something that happened. Jesus was a healer. Whether or not it was Mark's version or the sorcerer of the Jew, that's up to you, right? But we have at least one account, and so this is worth taking seriously because there's historical evidence behind what we're reading, and what that hopefully means for us is that if this Christianity thing is true beyond just being a historical fact, that that means that what we see within this story is also offered to us today. Does that make sense? We have grounds for believing in this kind of stuff, as crazy as it may be. So what we see with that, what's offered to us and seen within this story, historically reliable as it is, is this, um, where we're going today. It's an invitation to be with Jesus, specifically as the healer. In three stories, we see three instances of Jesus healing, which I've broken down into spiritual healing, physical healing, and social healing. Spiritual, physical, social, or relational, whatever language you want to use. And, and here's the thing is I've divided these into three, but Mark's audience would not have caught this. And Mark wasn't even trying because he saw all three of these as one thing. Our divide of spiritual, physical, relational, that is very much post-enlightenment individualism where we see my relationship to my body and my spirit and my relationship to my you know, parents or my friends or whatever as being separate. For them, they were all in one. They were the same, that this is very much a post-enlightenment belief. It's only recently in human history that we have separated these, and even the social and physical has been recovered, though, in our day and age. So if you're going to go read about this, uh, you can read. There's an incredible work um, called The Body Keeps the Score by a guy named Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Um, in it, he writes this. After trauma, the worst, so he talks about specifically physical or emotional trauma that is experienced by someone. After that trauma, the world is experienced with a different nervous system. The survivor's energy now becomes focused on suppressing inner chaos at the expense of spontaneous involvement in their lives. These attempts to maintain control over an unbearable physiological reactions can lead to a whole range of physical symptoms, including fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, autoimmune diseases, migraine headaches, as well as nightmares, depression, and assorted defensive postures that isolate and alienate relationally. 
This explains why it's critical for trauma treatment to engage the whole organism, body, mind, and brain, or we could say spirit, social, and physical. Now, I read this, and they're like, okay, what, where, what are we doing right now with this? I read this simply to hopefully show that the biblical worldview is one that body and spirit and community are all one and the same for the biblical writers. And what's happening within modern medicine is that's being recovered and seen, even though the spiritual language may not be showing up here. Trauma that we experience in our lives isn't just trauma that we're experiencing in our lives. We carry it in us. And so what that means is we read this passage is that we see for Jesus to heal us, he doesn't come to just heal us spiritually. Just to kind of, you know, sprinkle pixie ducts of like forgiveness. You're like, yeah, I'm better now, right? <laughs> Jesus comes to bring what we could call spiritual, physical, social, or holistic healing for his people. And so we have to see those things as being unified. But for the sake of our post-enlightenment brains, we'll separate them. Let's look at spiritual healing first. Look with me back to verse 21. Where this first story takes place on a normal Sabbath morning in Capernaum, where folks are gathered up in the synagogue. And and speaking in the synagogue that day, teaching uh, is this new rabbi, who unlike the touring rabbi and scribe from last week, whose authority was contingent and he was compelling to the Torah the whole time, going back to the writings of the Old Testament, there's this new rabbi here named Jesus of Nazareth, who he's appealing in his teaching, not to some outside authority, but to himself. Which for all of these listeners is they're going, this is something different than what we've seen before. Every other teacher, kind of like what I'm doing today, is I come up and I'm I'm largely just talking about what the Bible says. This is what most of the scribes were doing. Jesus kind of comes up without the Bible and kind of just, but he's completely connected to the Bible because he is the word made flesh. And he's speaking with authority and everybody's going, we've never seen anything like this. But right in the middle of the sermon, what happens? (laughs) Boom, breaks in and bursts. This man with an unclean spirit who, if you're in here, Please don't interrupt me like you guys did with Jesus. Talk to me later. Um, no, so uh, Jesus is teaching in a sermon much like this, and, and someone comes in from the outside and begins speaking. I know who you are, Jesus. Like this awkward, like, what are you doing here, holy one? And he just Jesus is just standing. You know, every, imagine like the weirdness that would happen in the room if something happened like this. The church that we were at before uh, Collective, that community, was in Reno, and we were right downtown. And Reno has a whole um, mess of different things that they're working through, much like Los Angeles, but mental health was one of them. And so we would have strange things like this that would happen on a regular basis. We're on Sunday gatherings. We're kind of here just teaching, worshiping, and at some point, somebody walks in and just decides, I'm, I'm going to start saying things just to mess things up and be kind of weird. And so I know what these people are feeling right now, you know, like, okay, what do we do? Everybody's kind of looking at Jesus, like, we'll see what happens. And so a few things that's interesting about this unclean spirit. Uh, the first thing is um, this language of, although it's one unclean spirit that's with this man, this speaking on a, a plural, you see that? that he's writing, he says, what do you have to do with us? Just an interesting, hmm, okay. So it seems as though... This, this spirit that's speaking through this man is speaking on behalf of a larger realm that's unseen. Similarly, another interesting thing is that this is the second party to name or announce who Jesus is in the Gospel of Mark. The first one was back at his baptism. Jesus gets baptized in a voice from heaven, says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, right? We have all this. This is the second time that someone acknowledges and sees Jesus for who he is, and it's some, this 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 unclean spirit. This unclean spirit knows who Jesus truly is and it scares the tar out of it. And then the first miracle of Jesus' ministry, he says, 
you know, basically shut up and leave. <laughs> like, can you, I mean, just, I mean, put yourselves, use your imagination through this place. Someone bursts into a church gathering. We're teaching from the scriptures. And the guy up top just kind of goes, shut up and leave, right? And then the guy falls on the ground and starts writhing. And then he's like, hey, I'm here, right? You would, it'd be insane. And that's why everybody's amazed is what it says. That word for amazed has like language of even like terrified. Like what in the, where are we right now? This is what's happening within this story. It's this amazing thing that Jesus has this ability to say, be silent, which we'll come back to this be silent thing later on in the teaching. But, but more specifically, be gone, leave. And it does, which is amazing for us. Not only today in exorcisms, that's, you know, there's no turning heads or like pea soup you know, or anything like that. But for his original audience that Mark's writing to, the common way of dealing with unclean spirits was a mystical, magical process. That all these different rituals that you have to go through, some including holding feces up to the person's nose to like get the demon to like leave because it's just like, I can't smell this right now. It's a real thing. Uh, another one was you would take someone with an unclean spirit and you would drill a hole in their head to let the demon out. Um, and if they survived, then they would wear that little thing as a necklace that then would ward off the demons. And so they found these, these um, ancient burial sites where they had, I think, 200 bodies recovered, and six out of the 200 had these little holes in their, in their skull. Um, it's common practice. And, and so here's the thing. What's so insane is Jesus isn't just like, zing, zing, like, come here, bud. <laughs> He's just like, leave, right? Jesus appeals to no outside ritual. Jesus appeals to no outside authority. So not only is Jesus' teaching authority in itself, but in dealing with unclean spirits, Jesus appeals to no outside magic practice. It is himself. And his words have the ability to bring this life and light. What's insane is this being Jesus' first miracle is once again, this authority is shown in himself, but this miracle, all of these miracles that we're looking at through the life of Jesus are signs of what it means that the kingdom is at hand, like we read a few weeks ago. So what does it mean that the kingdom is at hand? And we see an unclean spirit being cast out. It means that like one of Jesus' early disciples said in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus comes, and when Jesus comes to town, those who are, whether that's possession or oppression from unclean spirits, Jesus comes to town and he destroys the works of what they come to bring. In all of its spiritual, and even notice the physical component of this, convulsing on the ground and having, not speaking for yourself, not feeling like you have control over yourself. And the social component, all the people of God are gathered in the synagogue and he's on the outside. The social, the spiritual, the physical are all combined, and Jesus comes to destroy the works of the devil. And their response, as we read, is they're amazed. They're struck, like literally the word is struck, astonished. What do we do with this sort of guy? Not only when he preaches does he do it with authority, he has authority over these unclean spirits, and they obey him. What do we do with a rabbi like this? And so the first question for you and me today The first thing that we see is that to be with Jesus is to be with the Holy One of God, the one who has the authority to heal from spiritual oppression. And so I invite you just to take an audit of yourself right now. Am I or how am I in need of spiritual healing? This can be as acute as uh, possession, which doesn't seem like there's anyone here. Um, But again, that, that, that happens where there can be such a powerful, overbearing weight 
of spiritual evil that it begins to blur the lines of who's me and what's this. But it can be as an ambient, as an ambient's not the right word, but um, ongoing nightmares, panic attacks, recurring memories of trauma done to you or things that you've done being repeated and replayed over and over again. Recurring temptations, a recurring accusation, habitual patterns of sin. And again, within the, the demon or the thing, are we dealing with demonic or schizophrenic? Just we'll separate those. For now, let's just place ourselves in the writings of Mark and let's put these things together. And just acknowledge, is there something going on within me that there's a deep need for healing? A darkness that I can't seem to shake. Is there something that's keeping you from experiencing God, from experiencing the community of God and his people, of missing out on the fruit of the spirit, of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness and goodness, faithfulness, self-control? Is there something beyond, there's, there's something that's there? And you just, in your mind, name that, write it down if you're taking notes, or just hold it as we move into the next story. In the time of response, we're going to bring these things to Jesus. And so just hold that there if there's something. There's some experience or something that's been there. Next is physical healing. Let's keep reading. In verse 29. And then immediately, Mark's favorite word, he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew, or Simon being Peter and Andrew, his brother, and James and John. Now, Simon's mother-in-law, she's laying ill with fever. So the whole idea of what's going on here is um, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, demon kind of gets cast out. This is an interesting day at the synagogue. And Peter's kind of like, so are we still doing brunch at my place? <laughs> like, it's like basically, what's just happened? And so they all make their way back over to Peter's house for a, a Sabbath uh, meal. And back in the day, when you think of house, we think of, you know, it's, you know, Peter and maybe his mom. Back in, in, in Jesus' time, it was communal housing with extended families, upwards to like 60 people. I mean, think about that. Your cousins, your aunts, your uh, your grandma, grandma, like some of you are like, that'd be so fun. Some of us here are just like, I would rather die. Um, I'm not saying which one I am. I'm just putting it out there. Um, And so you'd have this communal housing with up to 60 people with a main courtyard where meals and cooking was done. And so as they make their way into the courtyard, they realize expecting Sabbath, you know, enjoyment and excitement and the meals ready and it's quiet. And very quickly they find out that uh, Simon's mother-in-law Peter's mother-in-law, uh, is, is laid up um, sick with a fever. Now, a fever in our day, you know, it's just like, did someone bring her, like, you know, acetaminophen and just kind of, like, take two of these? Like, come on, you know, get back to work. Fever in their day was, you didn't have this sort of thing, and so it was life-threatening uh, for them. This is, you know, this is deeply concerning for Peter to come home and find this out. Even more than that, like I said, in a largely... Um, What's the word we could use here? Connected society. This was far beyond just physical ailments, but was connected to spiritual as well. There was literally um, an idea that that a fever was actually the presence of an evil spirit with that person. Uh, Even today, modern day Bedouin tribes, they still hold on to this, that there's more going on behind a fever than just a fever. And even the social, because of the potential for spreading to other people, infection, or um, just the spiritual component to it. Those who had that, they were rel- they were pushed out from the, the get you know go, grandma go to your bedroom like stay in there leave us alone, and so Jesus just walks in and he sees her lying down and he just picks her up by the hand and she's healed the fever leaves her right once again there's no you know we, we got the incense Jesus comes in with the bells like chiming right. 
there's not even, for us as Christians, we pray to God that, when, that God would heal people. And there's no prayer on Jesus' behalf. He's just kind of like, up you go. Like, Jesus like, I'm all better now. Like, Jesus, once again, is displaying this authority to heal, not appealing to magic words or rituals. It just happens. And with this fever gone, now Peter's uh, mother-in-law, she begins to serve and wait on those in her home. Now, at first reading, for many of us here, it can seem like Mark is at, you know, maybe at best hinting at kind of, you know, the woman's role in the home. Like, Jesus is kind of like, up you go and right to the kitchen with you. Like, she's like sick dying five minutes ago. And now she's like, get, you know, dinner, let's go. Um, and, and that's, if we read that, we are absolutely missing what Mark's getting at. And it can be, some of this is because of just the language, but um, we'll let J.R. Edwards explain this uh, better than I could. Um, He says this, in response to the healing, Peter's mother-in-law began to serve them. Now, this verse has often been cited in support of relegating women to serving capacities, but it cannot have connoted the idea of subservience or inferiority to Mark. For the word for serve is the same word used for the angels attending Jesus during the temptation account back, you know, a couple weeks ago. It is moreover the same word translated to serve in Mark 10, 45, where we'll be, you know, at this rate, nine years from now, uh, (laughs) where Jesus declares that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Serving is the way of Jesus and those who follow him. And thus it describes an essential characteristic of the kingdom of God that Jesus introduces and exemplifies. For Mark, the proper response of one who has been touched by Jesus is to serve them. That is the Christian fellowship. So don't miss the point that Mark is making. And we're going to see this time and again as we read through Mark. People that get touched by Jesus and walk in obedience begin to serve. They begin to start committing themselves to waiting on taking care of hospitality, using their gifts for the benefit of those around them, whether it's hospitality or whatever it might be, you'll see it time and again. And so the reality is that when Jesus brings physical healing, that so often what it's meant to do is not just to get you to do whatever you want to do. The end goal of physical healing is to to set you free to serve, to serve God and to serve his people. And so this is exactly what we see, what happens with Peter's mother-in-law. And so this happens and word spreads fast. Mark says the whole city shows up. Capernaum was pretty big, whether this is hyperbole or not, he's allowed to use that, but whatever it is, there's a lot of people outside the doors now, flooding into the courtyard. They want a piece of what Jesus is cooking. And so they're waiting for him and Jesus comes out and he begins to heal people. He's healing people, he's casting out demons. And for the second time, We had the first one back with the unclean spirit. The second time, Mark mentions that Jesus tells, he doesn't permit, I love that language of authority, he doesn't permit the unclean spirits to speak who he is. Second time, okay, tuck it away, let's keep going. So the reality is, as we read through this story, just like with the unclean spirit and here with Peter's mother-in-law, to be with Jesus is to be with the one who has the authority to heal what keeps you and me from the life of love is identified in serving. And so I would invite you, once again, to take an audit. Am I in need of physical healing? Is there something that's keeping me from a life of love, being able to serve those around me, being able to serve the community of, 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 of Jesus, being able to serve God? And this might be everything from cancer to heart problems to depression to migraines to, like Peter's mother-in-law, uh, fever, Whatever it might be, what, what is, is there something that's keeping you from serving? So again, 
Write that down or just hold that in faith as we continue to our last one, social healing. In verse 40, in verse 40, it tells us that a leper came to him. Now, a leper was someone uh, with leprosy. That hopefully isn't surprising for anyone here. Um, it's, it's not a leopard, uh, as Michael Scott would say. Does anybody see the office? <laughs> You'll never guess who I'm dressed as in my office. I have the power of flight and the ability to heal leopards. Um, <laughs> the office. Um, so this leprosy uh, in Mark's time, this word could be used to refer to any number of, of skin uh, diseases um, as extreme to what we now know as leprosy as Hansen's disease, which is where uh, you're, you, you literally lose body parts. Um, you can look up on, on Google and even there's a distortion that happens to your skin. You're, you end up looking less, like just, you look at these people, absolutely image bearers of God and worthy of dignity. But what this disease does to them is it, it, they don't look human anymore. It's a terrifying thing. And so what happened with these people, whether it was just something as simple as, as, as you know, recurring rashes over their body, like eczema or something, all the way to Hansen's disease, for those that had this, it was social as much as it was physical, if not more so. Those with leprosy were obligated to keep away from the rest of society, not simply because this illness was regarded as infectious, but because they were seen as religiously impure or unclean in a religious sense. We have two chapters of Leviticus, uh, 13 and 14, that are dedicated to this issue. One excerpt uh, from that, so we can get an idea of what this man's life was like. It says, the person uh, with such an infectious disease or uh, the leprous person shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head or her head uh, hang loose and they shall cover uh, their upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. And they shall remain unclean as long as they have the disease. They are unclean. They shall live alone. Their dwelling is to be outside of the camp. So the whole idea was that those with this leprosy uh, were meant to stay within eight feet of distance from anybody that was not unclean, Uh, 15 feet if it was a windy day. I mean, they had it down to like perfectly done. Uh, Josephus, a Jewish historian, wrote that the banishment of lepers was as the banishment of those who were in no way differing from a corpse. Uh, rabbis of the day spoke of lepers as the living dead, whose cure was as difficult as raising the dead. So they were meant to walk through their lives. They lived on the outside, and when they had to come into town, I mean, it was if, you, if they went into a house, that house was now unclean and needed to be washed. And so you would not invite someone over to your house. I don't want to spend my whole day cleaning a house just to have someone over. If they went underneath a tree, under, it was that tree was now unclean until some, there, was, there was a process to clean this, like literally a tree. And so they'd have to walk through town dressing in such a way that when people saw them, they knew who they were. And then even they would have to cover their mouth so that it's a breath thing, right? And they would have to say, unclean, unclean, as they would go through town if they needed to go do something. And, and without making light of the situation, I mean, it's, it's, it's the idea in the mind of Mark's audience. I mean, it's similar to like sharing a needle with someone with AIDS, or making out with someone like the coronavirus. Like it's just like, or, or just even being like in the like airport, like I'm gonna be on a plane, you know, and, and it's not even like, there's not that many cases in LA. And I'm just so like, you know, you don't know. Gonna get it every time somebody's sick right now. It's like, hey, you got the corona, right? It's an ongoing joke. Why? Because of the fact that it's so, there, there's, a, there's a fear that we're all caring about this sort of thing. And leprosy was very much similar for them. 
And so it was a social thing as much as it was spiritual, um, as much as it was physical. They were barred uh, by their conditions from the earthly presence of God in his temple in Jerusalem. Those with leprosy were not permitted to go to the temple. The temple was meant to be this sacred, holy place of life. And someone with leprosy, it was like bringing life into the place, bringing death into the place of life. And so they weren't permitted to go there. Even allowed to go to the local synagogues, they weren't permitted to go, depending on the rabbi. Some rabbis would allow people with leprosy to attend the weekly synagogue meeting, but they would have to come before everyone else, and they would go into a corner and have a black um, tarp that would be put around them so they could sit and listen and engage within the synagogue. But they would have to sit where no one could see them, come in before anyone got there, and then leave after everyone else had left. So the whole life of these people, this is spiritual as much as it is physical, and and even more than that, it's social. This is what these people experience on a daily basis. This is why his cry to Jesus is far more than just healing. The leprosy is not the worst part of it for this man. It is the isolation from people. It is is being feeling distant from God, even though, as we see, God's love is not distant from him. He wants the ability to belong to community again, to worship in the temple. And it says Jesus moved with pity, moved with empathy for him, heals him. But not just, look at how he doesn't heal him. Don't read over this. Touches him. The power goes beyond not just that he's healed, but the fact that the way that he heals him is by touching him. I mean, I was moved this week thinking about when was the last time that this man was physically touched? When was the last time that this man had eye contact to feel someone that close in his presence? And, and all of this, all of that distance was out of fear that if, they, if someone touches me, they might get what I have. At the very least, they're gonna be unclean until they go see a priest and they get washed up. And so no one looks at me. No one gives me the time of day. No one touches me. And Jesus here shows something that's completely different than, and even more powerful. See, he was afraid of his the the contagiousness of his uncleanliness. And Jesus brings this contagious holiness that he touches him and he's healed. And once again, it's all out of this inherent authority that Jesus carries walking around with him. In 2 Kings, you can go read the story of the King Naaman who also had leprosy. And the way that he gets cleansed and healed of his leprosy is he has to go and dip in the river seven times. Like, he goes in, and he, like he, he throws a whole fit. Like, seven times? Why not once? Like, it's a whole, it's a really funny story. But the whole thing is, is throughout the story of the scriptures, healing is, is sometimes available, but it's always through prayer. It's through mediation. It's through a river. And Jesus just touches. And the unclean is made clean. And this man's life is forever changed. And Jesus picks him up and then sends him. Follow Moses' ordained way his prescription that after being cleansed, and he tells him, here it is for a third time, to be silent. Don't tell anyone about me and how this happened, but go, go to the temple. Make out the ways that you're supposed to do this, which he doesn't. (laughs) I love it. He just is like, Jesus is like, hey, I just healed you, so I need you to be quiet, keep this on the low, and go to the temple, do the Moses thing that you're supposed to do, and the guy's like shouting, running through the streets. (laughs) He's just like, were you even listening? And so with this final story, we see that to be with Jesus is to be with the one who has the authority to cleanse us, to bring us back into the presence of God and into the presence of God's people. And so again, just take a moment. Audit yourself. Audit your life. Name where you're at. 
Are there relational boundaries that you feel within the community, within society, felt between either you and God, between you and God's people where you feel unclean? You feel like if anybody touches, if anybody gets around me, some of you, maybe you're, you're new to the whole church and Jesus thing and you walked in today and you halfway believe that there might be a lightning bolt at some point that's gonna like crack through the ceiling and take you out. The reality is, is that Jesus' whole thing that he's come to do is, is not to wait until you get your stuff together. He's actually here because you need him. And so whatever distance you might feel between God or the distance that you feel between God's people, Jesus is the sort of person who wants to heal you, cleanse you, and bring you back into a closer relationship with God than you experience right now and one with his people. Similarly, for those of us here that this one's just worth saying because we're gonna go beyond just being with Jesus to becoming like him right here. To become the sort of person like Jesus is to become the sort of person who touches the untouchable, who welcomes the pushed out and is the essence of love. And so take an audit on yourself right now. You might be both of these. You might be feel like you're unclean and distant, but also I think all of us need to take a moment and think about this. Am I calling unclean what God has called clean? Am I treating with distance those that Jesus has brought close? Just take an audit and think about that. As we consider one final thing, which was the secrecy that we keep saying throughout this story. Three times, do you remember? Unclean spirit. Jesus doesn't just say, get out. He says, quit talking about me, right? After Peter's mother-in-law is healed, he's um, not permitting demons to speak about who he is. And then finally here with this man that's healed, Jesus once again, shh. Which is strange because if you're Jesus, would be like, why, not, why are you not telling everybody, right? Like Jesus, you just think. He's like, we're going straight to Jerusalem. We're getting the microphone. It's gonna be like a Billy Graham revival. I'm gonna get up there and it's like, hey, it's me. Believe it, right? Why, why, not, why not this? Why the secrecy? This has been something that people have been considering for the past 2,000 years. This reality that Jesus allows everybody to see his authority, and yet for some reason he's keeping the identity cards close to the vest. Why does Jesus attempt to veil it? Over the past 2,000 years, there's been numerous theories, and, and the most, um, arguably, the, the, the strongest one is this. Jesus did not come into a vacuum. Um, but came into a context and a day and an age where there were a myriad of popular expectations about what it meant for Jesus to be the Holy One of God, the Messiah, the Christ. So many of them were focused on some sort of warrior, Messiah, and king who would defeat the Romans and establish God's kingdom on earth. And so the inclination of so many of the people of Jesus' day would be to make Jesus a king on their terms. And so in response, Jesus is walking around these three times, and it's going to happen more than 10 in Mark's gospel. Jesus tamps down the messianic expectations in order to define the true role of what it means for him to be Messiah, the true reality of who he's come to defeat, and the true reality of how he's going to do it. And on one level, we don't see that until the end of Mark's gospel, but Mark, being scripture, being meditation literature, as you read over it and you ask lots of questions, it seems to me that Mark's giving us a little wink and a hint at where it's going. In our final story, if we go back and remember what happens in the story of the leper after he's healed, after Jesus tells him not to go tell anyone, it says in verse 45 that he went out and began to talk freely about it, this being the leper, and to spread the news. And as a reality of that, what? Jesus was no longer openly 
able to enter a town, but he was out in the desolate place. He was no longer wandering through the cities. He was out. But the thing is, is that that doesn't happen. Jesus comes back and he goes into Capernaum. So for some reason, Mark is giving us just a, a little moment where he wants us to think about a leper walking around through the town freely and Jesus in the outside place by himself. Mark is setting up for us this weird little picture right here in one verse where he's wanting us to chew and think about what does it mean for Jesus to switch places with a leper so that the leper may be in the city, for him to be in the outside place. Do you see that? I don't think this is contrived. I think Mark, this is what Mark is bringing out and wanting us just to chew on. And over the course of his gospel, he's going to develop this theme more and more and more, even more to what we read earlier in Jesus being a servant, saying that he did not come to be served like the Messiah that everyone thought, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Where Jesus reversed and switched places, not just with a leper, but with all of humanity and all of their social and spiritual and physical brokenness. See, all of the Jewish population was awaiting a reigning king and Messiah, the one sung about in the Psalms, the one prophesied by so many of the prophets and the one awaited in the law. But Jesus is also here to show himself as the servant the prophet Isaiah was waiting for, the one who would heal by being wounded, who would save by trading places with humanity. It'll be long, but Isaiah 42 and 53, it's, it's required reading if we're gonna understand what's going on here. Where the Lord speaks to the prophet Isaiah says, behold, my servant, whom I uphold, he's my chosen, and my soul delights in him. Remember Jesus' baptism? Behold my son, the one in whom I'm delighted, right? I'm well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him. Jesus' baptism, the spirit descends, right? All of the past few weeks are coming together here. He will bring forth justice to the nations, but he's not gonna cry aloud or lift up his voice or made it heard in the street. There's that, the secret going on. A bruised reed he will not break. That speaks to Jesus' humbleness, his gentleness. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in all the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. He was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He's being treated, you see the leprosy language here. He's being treated like the reject, the one on the outside. Surely in all of this, he has borne, that is carried our griefs, he has borne our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was, that was the, the biggest but, I didn't mean to say it that way, the, the turning point. But he is the changing point. Even though we saw him as all of these things, but we esteemed him, not all of this happened, but he was pierced for our transgressions. That is our sin. He was crushed for our iniquities and rebellion. Upon him was the chastisement, that is the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. The way Jesus establishes the goodness and justice and the healing that he's come to bring comes out of the authority and the identity of who he is as the son of God who has come to seek and save the lost and give his life as a ransom for many that by his wounds we might be healed. And so Jesus in his cross bears and carries on himself all of our spiritual sickness. All of the things that you might have listed or put down, Jesus carried on himself, feeling like you are forsaken by God when in reality you are not. Jesus himself experienced being forsaken by God on his cross. So many of you feel crushed under spiritual darkness. Jesus, Jesus wants you to see that he allowed himself to be crushed and killed under spiritual darkness so that we might be spiritually healed. 
Furthermore, Jesus physically heals us by allowing himself to be not just beaten and whipped, but crucified and killed. The death in all of the little ways that you feel it, from cancer to disease to ongoing migraine, whatever it might be, that Jesus allowed his body to be crushed so that he might heal yours. And the social sickness that you feel rejected, Jesus invites you to see that he's in it with you, that he was scorned, he was mocked, he was rejected, he was despised, he was spit upon, that everything that you've gone through in this life, spiritual, physical, and social, not only can Jesus stand in it with you and say, me too, but Jesus even more than that through his resurrection now promises healing available in those things. And so to claim that Jesus is the healer who wants to meet us is to claim that Jesus has the authority to do that. It's to claim that Jesus is here and to say that he's the healer is the great reality is that we as humans stand in need of healing. To be human is to be broken. And to be broken is to stand in need of healing and grace. And to stand in the need of healing and grace is to stand at the very place that Jesus wants to meet us. In a couple of weeks, we're gonna see that people look at Jesus coming and being with these sorts of people and they, they get all frustrated because they're religious and think they're perfect. And Jesus says that I did not come for the people that have it all together. I came for the sinners. I came for the sick because the people that need a hospital and need a doctor are not the people that have it all together. It's the people that are sick and broken and dying. And that's who I came for. And so Jesus has this authority. And so as we go into the time of the response, in just a minute, I'm gonna pray for us. We need a handful of realities in the midst of the things that we've written down that we're carrying into this time. The first is that we need to just go back to what Jesus said. The whole summary statement of his gospel is that the time is fulfilled and this kingdom of God is now at hand. It's at hand. Then we need to simultaneously hold this in our hands. That because it's at hand, what that means is that it's arriving. That means it's both now and not yet. And so when it comes to our physical, our social, and spiritual brokenness and healing, we need to hold in our hands, on one hand, the reality that it's here, that we can come and pray for healing and believe that God hears us and that God does heal today. There are many of us here that we're only focused on the kingdom and healing and whatever that might be being some future thing. The kingdom at hand means that it's available to us right now and right here, just like it was 2,000 years ago for these people. Simultaneously, the tension of faith is that as we come in this brokenness and we pray for healing, that Jesus has said yes to healing, even though it may be not yet. But the promise is that at his resurrection, or his, he has resurrected, at his return and our resurrection, that all of reality and all of us will be fully healed. And the tension of faith is that we live in this already and not yet. And so we pray for healing now while trusting that even if we don't see it now, we will see it fully one day. And for each of us, you might be on somewhere in the middle on that thing. You may lean towards only focusing on future healing, and you might think that I'm not even going to go pray about it. Jesus invites you, come to me. For others of you that you, you, you overrealized, you think Jesus is here, and, and the problem is you don't have enough faith. The issue may not be enough faith. The issue may be God's timing. And so as we pray for healing, we, we come in the midst of all of these things. And so Jesus invites us to be with him all of us to be with him, all of our brokenness. What we don't give to Jesus, Jesus cannot heal. And so we have to bring all of this before Jesus and ask him to touch us and heal us. And so the reality is, I don't know, there's, this, is, this is the point in the sermon where I wanna give a lecture on understanding healing of already and not yet and trusting God in the midst of do we keep praying or how does this go out or do I go to see a doctor? And I, there's, there's so many things here. And so I'll just, I'll say this. 
that the Apostle Paul, the same guy who walked around like Jesus, touching people and had them healing, he also had a guy named Luke who followed him around everywhere. And Luke was a doctor. And Luke would regularly attend to his wounds. It wasn't just like, oh, you know, I got a paper cut, you know, heal. Like, he would, he would there, there was a tension in between that. And so I just say, as you're praying for physical healing, come, be with the prayer team, pray and ask God for healing, and maybe go see a doctor this week. Some of you have social healing. Pray, work through this, ask God to heal you, and, and maybe come talk to a pastor, maybe schedule something with a therapist this week. Some of you have physical, go see it. Some of you have spiritual, whatever this might be, that, that the way of Jesus is not one of either or, but both and when it comes to healing. Because like we said in the beginning, the vision of this world is not one of a dichotomy of spirit over here. And so this is prayer and theology and over here is what doctors do. It's somehow one and the same. And we're invited into that tension to be faithful with the lives that God's given us. And so um, that's my best at giving a spin at like, what about all the questions I have about healing is um, one of trust and being faithful to the gifts that God's placed in front of us, like really smart doctors and really good therapists, um, while also trusting that as we pray, Jesus is in the work of healing us. So why don't we pray and we'll go into a time of response. Amen?